You're listening to Chasing Kangaroos, the rugby league podcast for fans who are passionate about seeing the game played in more places. Hey, Biggest, what's news, mate? A wonderful world of rugby league. How did the Dragons go on the weekend? Mate, they did okay. Oh, look, they did okay. Did anyone expect them to win? No. Did we expect no. them after 20 minutes in or something like that to win? Maybe. We got excited. Mm. But, uh, you know. Yeah. You can't, it's hard to be upset, you know, when you play in the Roosters and you come close, but not quite close enough. Um, yeah. Brett Morris, mate. Fucking hell. Doesn't he just keep oh, getting better? The guy. I mean, the one of the... Classic rugby league tropes is winding back the clock, turning back time, or whatever it is. So he's doing a great job of doing that. Not only that, he's uh, he's better. Like I was talking about, I was talking about him in his prime back at back in the Dragons days. But this is his prime right now. He's better now than he ever was. It's incredible to watch, and I love it. I actually love it. Yeah, I, I mean, when you started to say that it, when he was in his Dragons in his prime, I was just about to tell you. I think it's probably now, so I'm glad you got there. Yeah, I got there eventually, mate. Uh, but yeah, good, good stuff. The Tigers got a good win as well, so you're happy. They're the best. Um, they're the best. the best team in the comp, so that's great. So they're the best team in the bottom. Improving. The best team in the bottom eight. Um, <laughs> well, the six big guys. So <laughs> don't worry about it. Uh, now, speaking of ladders and and tables and stuff, the Super League's is about to return. Have you heard that? Yeah, they're coming back August second behind closed doors, which is great stuff. Um, a lot of uh, got a lot of listeners on the other side of the world, and. Um, they're all very pumped to be watching the NRL right now, but there's a few of them mm. that have just uh, been waiting quietly for Super League to return, and they're, they're very, very happy. Very, very happy that it's going to be back. It's going to be 15 rounds or 15 more rounds, um, and then I think it's a four-team semi-final. Winners will face each other in the grand final, which will be in November, so that's really cool. And can you remind me who your, your team is Mate, for the Super League? The Saint, uh, Saints are my team. I've got a soft spot for uh, Catalan and Toronto, of course, as, the, as an expansion. Yeah. But I've been going for the Saints since as long as I've known about Super League, pretty much. So it's hard mm. to um, hard to change teams. Uh, speaking of Toronto, we get a lot of questions. I get a lot of DMs uh, during the week. And a lot of people hearing about the news that Super League's coming back. And they're asking me questions about promotion relegation. So people are worried, you know, Toronto not doing so well. Uh, before the before the season sort of was put on pause, um, so they're worried that the Wolfpack might be relegated. Um, and but the simple the simple answer is, I doubt that's going to be the case right now. Uh, we're not even sure if Championship is going to be back. So there's there's I think there's the clubs are still debating on whether it's financially viable to actually start the Championship season. So if there's no Championship winner to be promoted, then there will be no Super League team relegated. I think it would be very safe to say. So I think, um, mm. yeah, I think the Wolfpack going to be safe. But hopefully, hopefully they get a few wins on the board when the season restarts on August 2nd. Uh, now, I don't know how much of a response you've had to the our chats about Euro 13s, but there have been some more team announcements. Have you seen that? I've Golden s- points to Euro 13s? Yeah, I've seen that. Who's, who are the new three? We've got Copenhagen, which, uh, which I was excited about. There's also one called... I don't really know how... Uh, uh, I mean, it's from Moldova, but the... The Scorpions? Yeah. I don't know how to say the first name. <laughs> I'm going to say Chizer now, but I'm guessing it's wrong. But I'm, I'm always going to yeah, give it a crap. That sounds good. Please, re- please, uh, listeners out there, please correct me. I know you guys normally do. So the Scorpions, and the, good, good to see Moldova, Moldova Rugby League uh, awakening. Represent. Yeah. Mm. 
And then uh, still up in the Super League world is uh, the Edinburgh Eagles. So it's good that other parts of the UK are getting involved. Yeah, Edinburgh is uh, huge, man. I think um, yeah. Edinburgh, like the, 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 the teams they're used to playing in the North East Division um, in the UK are going to be like that's a that's they they're used to stronger competition than they're going to face here in the Euro 13s I believe obviously we'll mm. yet to see who the draft picks are and things like that but Edinburgh um I would say going to be hard to beat at this stage well that yeah cuz I think you put on the social somewhere that that's the strongest team and then you've got a whole bunch of whiplash hey, while the other teams are in the comp good to see good to see the other teams you know yeah. put, putting their hands up and talking some smack, but um, yeah, I think the Eagles are going to be way too strong at this point. Now, speaking of getting smacked on the socials, Cubs, you also politely kind of got around Kangaroos versus All Blacks and then got <laughs> politely smacked by a bunch of people. I, I, now, from when I first heard about this Kangaroos-All Blacks potential hybrid game, my initial response, like my immediate thought, was one of excitement. Mm. Because I got to, like, as as growing up, you hear about, we've, we hear about this every year or every couple of years, like, this, this idea or this concept comes up. And I always had this vision in my head as a kid that one day this would be played. The, the bosses on each end would decide that it would be a great idea to put all the marbles on the line and the winner would take all, so to speak. So whoever wins would be the... Oh, whoever the, wins, yeah. the other code has to yeah, die. Yeah, well, yeah, kind of. That's, that's this big, mad, crazy vision I've always said, like, yeah, very, yeah, anyway, it's obviously never going to happen that way. But I saw that and I just thought, oh, wow, this could be cool. And then, um, and then, but Twitter changed my mind. And I just started seeing other people talk, like making a lot of sense about why this is a terrible idea. And mm. usually went once, I'm a stubborn, I'm a stubborn guy. So usually once I have a thought in my mind, it's very hard to change it. But uh, I realized that I was a little bit too quick to, to get around this one. And I'm, I don't like the idea now that the more I think about it. But um, what are your thoughts, big man? Well, uh, for my first thought is how great a human you are because so many people on social media would say something public and then regardless of they believe it or not, <laughs> would now just die on that hill. Whereas you were sensible enough to go, here's my initial reaction. And then you took in a whole bunch of people's reaction. And then you said, okay, well, on reflection, I've now changed my position. So, so good on you for, for being able to do that publicly. Um, I, my first reaction was I hated it yeah. and I uh, also haven't moved from that. I think... Um, there are so many better international rugby league games that we could be watching, and just because rugby union is coming to us cap in hand doesn't mean that we should placate them now. Also, the other thing about it is that I don't think um, I don't think the kangaroos and, and all blacks are even the best combination because, as you keep telling everyone, Tonga mm. beat the Roos recently. So, I mean, watching... I think I said to you I'd rather see Tonga versus Tonga, uh, rugby league versus rugby union or something like that, rather than Australia versus New Zealand in this, particularly when... I feel like it's a mild insult to the Kiwis as well because the, the Australian test match, the rugby league test matches against New Zealand are fantastic. Why on earth do I need to get involved with that, um, you know, well, that's cousin a, that we don't usually talk about? That's the thing. We could be pushing the Kiwis. We could be pushing Tonga. We could be cu- pushing anyone, the Kumuls, Fiji, pushing anyone else. But um, instead, they're talking about this hybrid match, which really doesn't mean anything. The the product of the hype, like when you look at the rules that are that they're, they're talking about for this match. It's not even as good as rugby league. So, you know, if the All Blacks want to switch codes, we'll play them in rugby league. That's fine. Yeah. But um, until they decide to, to move from the dark side, so to speak, um, yeah, not a good idea. But um, I think, you know, it might be one of those things. You know how every now and then the NRL throw out like a little idea 
to see what people think about it or just to, yeah, yeah. like, say, remember they spoke about, like, having, you know, uh, adding, like, two wild cards to the finals, which everyone hated, but they'll, like, just... I, I didn't, but you, I loved it. Did you like yeah. it? Did you? Anyway. Yeah, well... Well, my team's constantly not, so I was <laughs> going to be... That actually makes sense. ...finally making the finals. <laughs> but, yeah. But, look, let, let, look. I think we can both agree, Kangaroos versus All Blacks, we don't want to see it. I'd rather see Tonga, rather see Kiwis um, up there. If, we, if we're going to have an... Inter- if we've got a weekend for an international match, let's have an international rugby league match and uh, the All Blacks can, can do whatever they want to do, to be honest with you. And uh, this, this links beautifully to... Um to who we're gonna, who I interviewed later. So can you just quickly tell me about? I know you've usually got a little uh, Serbian golden <laughs> point up your sleeve. Well, see, you guessed right, mate. You know me too well. <laughs> Serbia, Serbian rugby league's alive and kicking. And uh, mate, you'll be happy about this one. So the so there was a draw in the first yeah. round of the of the Superliga over there in Serbia. Red Star Belgrade and Partizan Belgrade, the two yeah. the two rivals, the two best, arguably the best clubs in Europe outside of uh, France and the UK. But yeah, Red Star 24, Partisan 24. What a match. Can you believe it? Can you believe it? They're on the build, Cubs. You've been telling me forever and now I feel like I'm telling you. They're on the build. Hey, we, well, you know, we predicted it here. We heard, you heard it here first and uh, you never mm. know. I, you know I love Red Star Belgrade, but um, I think the competition is good because they've been way too good for a number of years and it's good to see other clubs starting to come to the party as well and uh, make it much more interesting. But, mate, you mentioned, um, you mentioned your chat tonight. And uh, really looking forward to hearing it. Can you tell us uh, tell us a little bit about him first before we get into the chat and uh, what this chat's all about? So he is an Australian um, author, historian, sports commentator, general person. This is his first book. Uh, he grew up uh, a, a Batman Tigers fan and then eventually switched to Canterbury. But he um, he idolised like a lot of people who were watching football in the early eighties. Yeah, um, a big the big O, um, and so he, he ended up writing a book about him. But the incredible thing about it was when he went and spoke to Olsen Filipana about it, the the, the big O, um, often when you write a biography, you just get you, you get all the money. You might pay the player a one-off fee, but the yep. author gets all the money. And he was saying that makes no sense because this is I'm telling a, I'm telling a story, but it's his story. So, yep. so he, he insisted on it being um, a 50-50 split, and – and the first publishers, I think it was a university, a Queensland university who wanted the book, weren't happy with that arrangement because they wanted to make a bunch of changes that weren't going to fit in then with how Patrick and, and Alston were pushing the book. And so they lost their first publisher and then, and then they went out to the market and found, they found someone in New Zealand that was happy to publish it. Yeah. And so then it became a much better story, not just about um, Alston, but also about the, the story really of, of rugby league um, in New Zealand, and the first kind of test series is uh, that that New Zealand does that finally puts them on the map yep. after after thirty or forty years in the wilderness. But the interesting thing about it is it comes straight off the back. Um, this is how it ties into what we were talking about before about the All Blacks. It comes right off the back of a, a series that the All Blacks did through New Zealand yeah. uh, in the late seventies, early eighties um, time, and. I may have got the ears wrong there, but the um, they're obviously doing their horrible racist stuff and the entire world is shunning South Africa. Yeah. But the super conservative um, New Zealand Prime Minister allows South Africa to tour and so uh, everyone turns on them. There's this huge, there's almost a civil war in New Zealand because all these rugby union, rich rugby union conservatives are pro-rugby union, but the rest of New Zealand's really upset that this um, 
that this anti-black team is touring through a a island that you know is yeah. has native Maoris and, and yeah. has real race tensions. Um, and New Zealand then swoops in. The New Zealand rugby league team then does a tour with France and England and all these other things, and they're full of Polynesian and Melanesian players um, and Maoris and things like that. And so there's a real turning point where New Zealand's rugby league fortunes could have actually exploded then, um, except for Australia beats them. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. And so, uh, but you, yeah, you, anyway, so you'd it, like to think it all build from there. Like what we're seeing now, it's 35 years on. But yeah. the seeds were planted in, in 1985, and that's what I'm excited about. I've heard Patrick on other podcasts uh, around mm. about the same time that you interviewed him, and he was talking mostly about the book and things like that, and just absolutely fascinating to listen to, yeah. like very knowledgeable, great speaker, and I, I enjoyed every podcast I listened to with, with Patrick there. And a few of our, many of our listeners probably would have heard those as well. So what we wanted to do and what you did really well, Big T, and which is why I can't wait to listen to this one, is really focus more on that 1985 tour, just so that we're getting giving our listeners some different sort of information and just a new story that, you know, I'm, I was born that year, so it's not one that I'm incredibly familiar with. And, um, yeah. yeah really he, um, he also has a whole bunch of uh, YouTube clips and stuff of that series. So if you're ever keen after this, hit us up and we can send you those because Patrick sent them on. But um, well, the other great thing about it is that I said to Patrick, I was reading it. Um, I was reading his book and kept uh, after about three chapters. I I got found him on Twitter and said, "I've got to talk to you about um, about Olsen and about um, New Zealand." And he said, "He he, I think he had some idea about the podcast. He was like, well, I definitely know how we can talk about how it grows the game because it grows straight out of 1985.' So he was already he was keen straight away to talk about the growth of rugby league That's instead of just doing, as you said, he, he was doing a bunch of. Um, a bunch of different interviews and podcasts, and he said to me, "I don't want to keep saying the same thing." Um, so here's here's a new angle and a, and a growth of game angle. And he's such a great bloke. You, everyone should get around. But if you know, if you haven't read the book, go and find the book. And even if you haven't, go and find him on Instagram, Twitter, and just give him some love because he's a great bloke. Yeah, beautiful. big rugby league fan, a big rugby uh, big rugby league fan, really big rugby league podcast fan. Like he was just really appreciative of us recording um, stuff about rugby league because he thinks that's just a really great idea. So yeah, really great bloke. One of the nicest guys in rugby league, Park Cubs. <laughs> I'm waiting. If you don't say that, you you didn't really interview the person. If you like, that's that's like your little signature. Big T yeah. speaking to the nicest people in rugby league. Well, that's awesome. We'll try and add those links that you mentioned in the show notes as well. And um, let's get to that interview. Before we do, two things very quickly. Um, everyone, mm. and I mean everyone, is slamming me in the DMs, asking me when this New York Ricky Wilby episode is coming out. Um, we're going, including me. I've been slamming even you. Have, the even you have. Even you have. It's um. It's it's been fun, but um. It's coming. I'm thinking we'll release it this weekend as our final uh, Sunday bonus episode. We've had a few of those, which have been great. And thank you to all for listening. But we'll we'll release that as a bonus episode next Sunday. So look out for that. Um. Also, I've got an idea, Big T, that I don't know if I've mentioned before, but I want to throw it out there. So do you remember like when I was, well, I don't know if you've had similar like nostalgic memories, but when I was a kid, um, if I ever went on a drive with my dad on the weekend, we'd listen to like the continuous call team or whatever, like talk back radio, talking about rugby league. And did you ever have any, any memories like that from when you were a young, young big tiger? I live, I live it now. I, often in, cause we're a father's first, um, as football families, on on the Saturday games, but whatever the three o'clock um, Saturday game is, I listen to that in my earpiece while we're at the park. Beautiful. And I'm constantly listening to the boys um, 
the call team there getting text messages in. I often text message in as well. I love it. Beautiful. I love it. Well, what I want to do is sort of do that via podcast. So people can't call oh. us, but we can call them. So I'm thinking of doing like a reverse call thing where we get maybe <laughs> five or six listeners that want to ask us anything. We don't know what they're going to ask. We don't know what they're going to want to talk about. And um, This is dangerous, yeah, cars. It is, but it could be fun. I want to do something different. So listeners yeah. out there, if you're keen to be on the show, ask us anything you like, DM me. We'll start a list, and in a few weeks' time, we'll do like a reverse call-in show, and we'll just talk about whatever the listeners want to talk about with Cubs and Big T. And then you need to answer the phone with like, I chase, I chase kangaroos with Cubs and Big T, <laughs> I chase and then kangaroos. if they don't, then we hang up. <laughs> <laughs> well, if they, if they do, then we go, yeah! If they do, maybe they can win something. Okay, we'll, we'll, go, oh. we'll figure something out. We'll got something up our we, We'll have something. We'll have something somewhere. Or, or Mascot Browns can, can find something. We'll, we'll figure it out. But anyway, let's do that. Yeah. If you're interested, guys. <laughs> just throw them in the deep end. Hit me, hit, hit Mascotbrands.com, mascotbrands.com.au. Oh, yeah. We nearly forgot. Mate, we forgot that last week. Mascot I didn't forget. I'm trying to set you up. Yeah, mascotbrands.com and mascotbrands.com.au. <laughs> uh, you know by now, guys, discount code for 10% off 2020 vision. Um, yeah, make sure you get it. Mascotbrands.com, mascotbrands.com.au. All right, I've done enough talking. Over to you, Big T, and fuck yeah, nobody. Thanks, Carb. Sitting patiently on the phone with me today is a man who writes stories on the intersection of sport, history, and culture. His work has appeared in The Guardian Australia, The Age, and Inside Sport, among others. He hosted an Aboriginal sports history radio program on the National Indigenous Radio Service. Now he has written his first book focusing on the big O. Today he is here to help me deep dive into the international series that changed the landscape of rugby league between New Zealand and Australia and other Pacific nations. Patrick Skeen, welcome to Chasing Kangaroos. A joy to be on the Chasing Kangaroos. <laughs> uh, now you're on a bit of a circuit, I should add. I'm I'm a connoisseur of rugby league podcasts, and I've already heard you um, a few times. So it's exciting for me to kind of have those tastes, and now I get to meet the real thing in real life. Well, one thing I've tried um, is everyone that has interviewed me on the podcast, I've asked that they read the book, so they come at me with unique questions because it can get a bit repetitive. It's the same, it's the same questions, and and funnily enough. Um, everyone's come with a different angle, which uh, I've learned some, some some new things on the journey as well as far as what people have taken out of it, so it's been great. But I think the podcasters are in many ways the new custodians, keepers of the flame. They are uh, the ones who are, are, are digging up the old guys from the past and they're doing a much um, more consistent job than mainstream media. So uh, the podcasters are the cultural memory and I've got all the time in the world and I think they're a crucial aggregator of all the hardcore fans for, I think, for whom it matters the most. Well, you're absolutely got me swooning. What a great way to start. <laughs> Talking about how great I am. Thanks, never, mate. Never go wrong leading with a compliment. <laughs> That's right. Uh, great. And let's start with looking a bit about um, your, you, how you got into rugby league. Can you tell me a bit about how, like your childhood with, with rugby league? In Sydney, you really didn't have a choice um, you grew up in, in rugby league territory and um, it's interesting how you know how you fall to a colours or, or a team but I remember going down to Leichhardt Oval, um, leaving my grandmother's house in Lilyfield and walking down there and feeling part of this surging tribe mm. um, and back then it was probably the last of when Balmain was, was working class before um, it was kind of discovered as a, an, an inner west hipster haven <laughs> uh, who, who I think have actually taken on the new generation has taken it on as well because it's um, 
gem of the old Balmain working class suburb, and it really was hard working class. The tiny little terraces now that people seem to do a lot with were back then tiny little workers' cottages, and it wasn't a glamorous thing at all to come from from Balmain. It was pre the sort of green left movement, and where you know you'd now say it's kind of one of the headquarters of. But back then it was so meaningful to go down there, and it was even from sliding on cardboard boxes down the back of the old Leichhardt Hill. My memories are so crisp, but I remember, you know, my uncle and my father sitting me down and sort of teaching me about the world through rugby league. The fact that we can still have four times a year down in Leichhardt Oval to have taken my son down there um, to, 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 to try and show how meaningful rugby league can be is, is wild, and that's why grown men go a bit weak at the knees around the Leichhardt game or um, and even a Brookfield game, you know, even even Manly fans have the same feeling. If Manly were had to, were had to have to move to another stadium, it would be the death of the Seagulls because they're so bound up in the Brookvale experience. Like Tigers fans are wedded to the to the Leichhardt experience. But so I was Balmain for the first stretch of my life, and then I met Steve Mortimer in a pub in Wagga Wagga, and he spent half an hour talking to me. And often your uh, fan development is led by you know, meeting a player or that moment you meet a player. So mm. I switched to the dogs around the age 13 or 14. So I'm uh, polygamous in the, <laughs> as a rugby league fan. And then I, I came out on TV the other day and came out of the closet and fessed to having more than strong feelings for the Warriors. I think mm. they're, they're just very lovable what they've done for the league. I find, you know, I'll, I'll have my moment of truth when they play the dogs uh, this year. But, and I still think I'm still a, a bulldog at heart, but I've just loved everything about the Warriors. And writing writing this book has given me a deep appreciation of what they mean to the community and all the things, including our, our topic today of 1985, that actually led to the birth of the Warriors. Yeah. And New Zealand, New Zealand getting sufficient respect for the powers that be in Australia to say, okay, um, we're going to give you a team over there in New Zealand and make our first international uh, growth move for rugby league. Now, the risk of showing your age, What um, can I just take us quickly back to Canterbury? Did you end up being a fan for them during their their grand final winning times in the 80s then? It was about that time. It was about, yeah, about 84, 85, about the time of this test series. Um, it was convenient that they did win um, in 84 and 85. Um, and 88, that's what I'm also leading us. How did that go for you in your, in your heart then when you had the Tigers in Canterbury in the grand final? Or were you then the doggies... And it was, was it was cemented. Because two, two premierships were just yeah. things for, for, for a young man. That for sure. Feeling and, um, so I, although I still harbour, to this day, harbour strong uh, feelings for the Tigers and, and, and to walk down to the old Balmain Leagues Club, which was a big part of my life, and see it just filled with sort of junkies and you yeah. know, people have gone through it and lifted all the copper out of the walls and there's graffiti everywhere. Um, it just reminds me of something that's that's lost and it's not like me um you know today i went for my first swim and it was like yeah i'm back but the tigers will never be back as they once were they'll always be a part of the jv and their league club's gone now which was the scene of so so many memories Mm. rugby league is a consistent story of, of things being taken away from you you know, as areas gentrify and new people move into old areas sometimes it loses its rugby league flavor but somehow it it manages just to, to morph into something new. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, now, you mentioned 85, that you, you're, you're a Canterbury fan in 84 and 85, and I'm assuming that you're, you can remember those um, grand finals. Do you, do you remember the 85 
test at all between the kangaroos and the kiwis live? Do you remember it as a kid? I remember it as vividly as anything I remember in sport. Wow. Because I was, because I was brought up in... Uh, 14 is an incredibly impressionable um, age to where you're, you're, you're really in many ways a young man. You're, you're taking in much larger concepts. Some of your uncles and elder people are sort of treating you like a young adult and you're they're sort of you're not just having, um, you know, the, the level of conversation's changing. Right. And, and you're absorbing everything like a sponge. So I remember watching all of those on TV and I just couldn't believe because you never heard of New Zealand. Mm. And I just couldn't believe that they would just come out and they look fantastic in those black and white uniforms. And a bunch of no-names never heard of and a few that were, you know, so-so in the, in the Sydney League, or as we were led to believe, um, would just become this dynamic force that seemed to have the answer to whatever we whatever we threw at them. And I look back at it now, but, you know, we learned that it was the, the, the north-south divide in Australian Rugby League was actually an exploitable um, opportunity for, for, for opposition coaches because Australia... Australian Rugby League wasn't one big happy family. There was Queensland trying to get respect from the old bully, New South Wales, and it was bloated with poker machine money. <laughs> and um, and Queensland had to bludgeon respect, and then New Zealand had to bludgeon respect from Australia. <laughs> yeah. And Queensland had done a pretty good job in those first four years of origin. It was just an absolute shock to the point in, in 1985 where Ray Price was saying Queensland should stop selecting... Queensland players that were based in New South Wales because it was unfair. It's like only three seasons ago you were calling it four seasons ago you were talking about misfits and this would be a mismatch, and now you're uh, you're asking to strand the, the the Queensland players that have come south to play in New South Wales because Queensland's too good. Yeah, it was one of the most amazing respect turnarounds in history. And and uh, New Zealand these interlopers, provincial bumpkins, basically as far as New South Wales <laughs> is concerned, could somehow just muster when it counted in these test matches. Now, I don't want to get us out of order here, but it's just reminded me immediately that thing you're saying there about Ray Price suggesting that Queensland is playing in New South Wales should be able to then go back. It, it's kind of a lot like what they then did They did then to uh, the Kiwis where if you're playing in New South Wales, and remind me if I'm mistaking this, that you couldn't then go and play for New Zealand for a year or there was some annoying weird little, you know, borderline racist thing. I mean, not really racist, but, you know, borderline racist thing about that. I remember yeah, that right. It was, basic, it was basically protecting the New South Wales League for whatever reason. There was an international transfer ban, so if you went and played for a, a club outside your country, you weren't eligible to play for that country. And that's great for Australia because there was no yeah. Australians emigrating to play anywhere else. But there's stories of um, Henry Cartana, um, the Sorensons, Kurt and Dane Sorensen. And if you went to play for Australia, you, you had to sit on the sidelines for a 12-month ban if you went to play for the Winfield Cup. So Kurt, before he played for the Cronulla Sharks, Kurt Sorensen sat out for 12 months. That's crazy. And basically, you know, just almost sacrificing a year of your prime yeah. to get around this ban to come and earn some real money. He wanted to be a full-time professional footballer. Mm. Um, but uh, Keith Giddos came to New Zealand and somehow they managed to to wangle this, um, get around the transfer ban. So when Olsen came to Balmain in 1980, he was still allowed to play for the Kiwis. So, and that's why Olsen's the first big-time guy that New Zealand has got to see playing in Sydney and also uh, coming and playing for New Zealand and coming back to Carlow Park in the test matches and every year improving and improving mm. um, through, through, through 
playing in the, in the, in the, in the Tough Winfield Cup. Okay, now I, I did. I scuttled this a bit. So let's go. Let, can you set us up a bit? For anyone who doesn't know anything about the 85 series, can you give us a bit of an orientation to it? Like how many times it gets played in that year, where it's been played, things like that? Yep. So International Rugby League before 1985 was dead or at the very least on life support or needing the, <laughs> jaw, needing the jaws of death. Uh, but between 1971 and 1983, that's 12 years, New Zealand didn't win a test. Oof. Um, between 1980 and 1983, they didn't even score a try in those, two, in those two series. So right. International Rugby League was dead and they basically was dependent on the strength of England on whether anybody could put up a show against the Kangaroos. Um, France had left. France had beaten Australia in 1978. France beat Australia 2-0. Yes, there was a bit of home cooking on, on the refereeing, but even so, France was still competitive enough to beat uh, beat Australia. So, nineteen eighty three, Graham Lowe came in, and Graham Lowe was the man who didn't really have anything to do with the inferiority complex mm. that the Kiwis set up and had to put up in those previous uh, twelve years. So, well, a lot of the Kiwis players used to come to their trainings in Aussie club jerseys. So over there, when you're, you're playing in the Fox Memorial Cup, they'd turn up in their favourites, Parramatta Heels jerseys <laughs> and Graham Lowe. So you're basically talking about, you know, the way young Australian players would look at the EPL with, you know, you yeah. Liverpool. You, you may not even support an, a, an A-League club. Everything points to the EPL, and it was the same with the, the, the Winfield Cup. Right. So Graham Lowe, Graham Lowe stopped them wearing Aussie jerseys. We won't have that. The inferiority complex starts here. We don't worship these guys. Yes, we can love what they're doing over there, but we've got to start our own thing. So he brought in a few cultural shifts and, and he was new and young. And he also came across the first Kiwi, the first Kiwi coach to come across. He came across to coach Brisbane North in the BRL competition in 1979. Now, when it was announced that Graham Lowe was coming to play in Brisbane North, 25 players, including most of the first grade, just got up and walked. They said, what the hell's going in? You know, a new Kiwi, untested coach. Graham Love had won two premierships in a row in Auckland with uh, a team called Odahu, and he was responsible for the professionalisation of New Zealand rugby league as much as it could. Started to eat better. They went moved to three times training a week. And he came across to Brisbane North because nobody else in Australia wanted the job. It was the poison chalice. They'd come dead last and they stank. Right. He brought Mark Graham across as his skipper, and he brought Stan Napper. And he worked with guys like Zulu Stevens and Joe Kilroy, who was a brilliant but you know, exuberant, free-spirited, Harley-riding Aboriginal player. But with the right coach was unbelievable. If you check his highlights out on YouTube, Smoke and Joe Kil- Kilroy was uh, a, a sight to behold. He made Queensland Origin as well, just a great player. But only with the right coach. Someone right. realised that De- De- Dennis Rodman style for the Chicago Bulls. <laughs> right. But some guys, as long as they give you 100%, you've got to factor in some eccentricity. So they might go walk about or come in clubbing or miss a training here and there, but don't come down on them too hard because they'll be, be grateful that you gave them some leeway and that will be repaid in form, gratitude and loyalty. So International Rugby League's dead. Graham Lowe in his first series has absolutely shocked Australia in the second test in 1983, 13 13-7, and unbelievably pulled it off with Shane Varley, you know, an absolute long-grass amateur from New Zealand, just rose up. And 
it set it set the stage for the 1985 series because they had beaten Australia and then Australia in 1984 reneges on a promise to play the series. So Graham Lloyd says, right, I'm going to spend two years preparing for to bring the Aussies down. And he's watching tapes every day, sometimes <laughs> three, four in the morning, <laughs> looking for holes. He just became obsessed. Because right. you see, he had a chance to turn New Zealand around. Mm. And he, his theory was this. Australia in... in, in Two things. One, they had stopped playing entertaining football. And that's not Parramatta, by the way. Parramatta were the entertainers uh, before Warren Ryan's sluts. But Warren Ryan, in 1984, the Canterbury Bulldogs brought in a defensive style of play that everyone had to copy. Right. Um, they, they'd work out how to, how to game the system. And it was highly unentertaining rugby league. But the Kiwis still played the entertaining brand of rugby league because they relied on door money from, 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 from ticket sales. Yeah. So no one's going to pay to watch that sort of sludge. In Sydney, you go and watch the Bulldogs do anything if you're a Bulldogs fan, whatever the style is. And, and if their style of unattractive football is winning, yeah. you'll take you'll take a couple of premierships. Oh, that was the way it was. So he, um, in preparing for the first test in Brisbane in 1985, him and Mark Graham came up with a game plan. One was to throw, just keep throwing the ball and, tire, and tiring the forwards out, throwing the ball across the field from one side to the other. But the forwards were, they were all into tackle, and stats were starting to come in, and tackle counts, and mm. if you deny people their chance to make an impact, they'll get quite frustrated and tie them out. They were tossing the ball from one side to the other, and the other one was that he, he thought that because Jim Coman, the sheriff, had removed all of the cheap shots and all of the fighting and all the bad stuff out of rugby league, Graham, but, but those same rules weren't applied at international rugby league. Right. Uh, so uh, the referee, French referee, Julien Rascanier, one of the great, great characters in International Rugby League, he was used to playing in the south of France, which was a particularly brutal, <laughs> kick, you in, kick you in the ball, savage brand of rugby, the toughest, or the, the dirtiest brand of rugby right. league. So a few Carlaw clothesline tackles was not going to be a concern for him because he was southeast France, um, Rugby League was just was brutal. So Graham Lowe saw, and he had the ultimate junkyard dog, the man who Wally Lewis called the toughest man in rugby league, Kevin Carmody, mm. as his junkyard dog to go out and Kurt Sorensen, who was his half Tongan, half Danish Viking. Yeah, right. Which is uh, an interesting mix. Probably the two most ferocious groups of people in some new hybrid. Yeah. Um, so he had two absolute attack dogs, and he gave them license to go and soften the Aussies up because they weren't used to. They 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 were had they were three years into you know, mm. keeping their hands down and being good boys. <laughs> so he, could, he thought he could rattle the Aussies because he had the, the, the firepower to do it. So with that twin game plan, he went into the Brisbane '85 series uh, ready to go. And Wally, I mean, this is my favourite bit, and the, my favourite bit of the entire thing is Olsen's firing up. He, he wants to get he he knows personally he wants to get um. Wally, and I love that I'm telling you this because I only know all of this because I've read your book, but he's, he's in the warm-up trying to, you know, he's thinking about Wally and, and he keeps looking over at Wally and Wally won't look at him. Is that right? Is that this game? Yep, that's, that's the first game. Yeah. So, Olsen's basically in reserve grade at Eastern Suburbs. That's he's right. He left Balmain and he's gone to Eastern Suburbs under Arthur Beetson. Both um, Jack Gibson and Arthur Beetson have had a bidding war and they're Friends because both of them wanted to sign Olsen 
Matt Gibson was coach of Cronulla at the time. And um, two friends and legends of the game were prepared to fight over Austin, but he went into reserve grade there immediately because he's still doing his garbage runs. And they're still making him do 10K runs around Centennial Park to yeah. the same as Frank Stanton did. His knees are playing up. And they had one bad game, and Olsen gets blamed and put down to reserve grade, where he's basically sitting in reserve grade. And he gets plucked out by the, the, the Kiwi. So Wally is thinking, oh, um, you know, who is this guy? A reserve grader, Eastern Suburbs. And he's not really paying attention to um, Olsen. He's never played against So He had played against him in the uh, some previous test series, but not... Olsen was in the centres uh, in previous tests. Right. So while he's turning up, um, he's just had the best year of his life. Unbelievable. He's captain Brisbane to the Anco Cup. He's captain uh, Winner Manly to the Brisbane Premiership. He's captain Queensland to State of Origin. He's captain Eng- uh, the Kangaroos to a 3-0 whitewash of England. He's won every possible honour imaginable in the game. Right. And so he's turning up at Lang Park in what's meant to be his home coronation. <laughs> he's won five origins in a row. Right. Um, he is truly the emperor of Lang Park, and he's been absolutely humiliated by Olsen uh, in this test. And Olsen's given him the stare down while he hasn't looked back, and Olsen said, right, I've got this guy psychologically. I can make my name here. I can make my mum proud. That was his yeah. was just that phone call with his mum afterwards. And Graham Lowe calls his mother for an hour in Auckland before the first test, before he announces the team, to check with her whether she thinks he, you know, his mental state is, is up to um, playing against Wally Lewis at 5-8. After an hour of back and forth, she says yes. Graham Lowe goes and tells uh, Olsen, your mum said, uh, your mum said uh, she thinks you can get over Wally and she'll give you a flick here if you don't. He's like, well, that's it. <laughs> He's ready to go over the top. And this is one of the key things that came out of that um, that book in this 85 series where we learned so much about how um, a lot of these Pacific Islander um, people think um, and how different they are to, to how Frank Stanton and everyone else thought that they should be thinking, that that, that sign of him calling his mum isn't going behind his back or doing something outlandish. It's actually something that's important and respectful and, and that kind of um, connection to family and connection to community is a really important part of of what's happening with Olsen and the rest of New Zealand. It's a really interesting um, part of uh, the research for this book was just seeing the differences in the extended family kinship structure of Polynesian and Melanesian families and Māori, and Māori are effectively a 900-year-old Polynesian colony. Seeing these um, families at, at family structures at play where the, the strong um, help the weak and money is distributed evenly throughout the family. And it means you, you never deal with the individual, whereas the, the, the Western model is of, of, of the individual is parents would rarely, uh, not in all cases, but parents wouldn't get involved in contracts that would be mostly you'd trust the agent. And, yeah. But in, but in Polynesian families, families are involved in everything. It's, it's actually the mother that made the decision for Olsen to come over to Australia. It was the father that made the decision that Olsen was to play rugby league over rugby union because he was in the schoolboy all-star team for both sports at the age of 16. He was a oh, hot commodity and a two-sport uh, two-sport prospect. That's phenomenal, isn't so it? It's, uh, it, it, it's there, and, and Australians would never, ever think of bringing the parents in unless the kids had a mental breakdown or, you know, is broken. 
like the princess have learnt uh, over time, and Bellamy is the master, Craig Bellamy for the Melbourne Storm is the master of it, mm. um, in, involving the family in decision-making and the whole family taking ownership of the improvement of whatever the problem is or the maintenance of whatever good things um, are, are, are happening. And it's, it's, it's amazing that this community is not changing for anyone. That's a really different perspective, and and that's got to be part of the reason why um, there was a, quite a lot of racism on the field and off the field um, around these players at that time. And, I mean, it seems to have reduced quite a lot, at least on the field, over the last uh, 20, 30 years. Um, but it seems to be rampant uh, during this '85 series. I think it was rampant. So we'll, 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 we'll get to the point. But uh, Gary Campbell says that there was a lot of talk in the Kiwis pre-match uh, discussions about bashing the Aussies to stop the racism. Right. That if they, um, if, to, to really take them on, and that would be one of the things, if they heard it in Nigley racism, to take it up with the guy. And and, and that's what happened with Kevin Tarmody on the field. Mm. Um, he heard some racist stuff and he went at a few guys. And off the field, um, which we'll get to in the most uh, famous attitude adjustment that uh, we've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I mean, it's yeah. Let, let's talk. So, so how do how does that game end up? So the Kiwis burst out of out, out of the blocks, and, and, and Graham Lowe is really motivating these guys. He's playing videos of the New Zealand rowers in in Munich who won their gold medal, and they're crying tears of joy, and he's really tapping into their their emotions, and uh, the Kiwis executed their game plan. The Australian players were, were regimented. They passed the ball around a lot, sometimes not even making yardage. And they kept the forwards running across the field. Um, the French referee, Ruskin, yeah, wasn't, um, wasn't really policing some of the rough stuff, and um, they got on top of the Australians. So they actually also played unbelievably. Kevin Carmody played unbelievably. Dean Bell, it was his coming out, and John Rebo alive. Now this guy who's just come across from New Zealand playing for the Roosters showed an unbelievable turn of pace. Olsen scored a try, set up another. But then the Aussies took Mark Graham out, the captain, and he was a real talisman. He's like the leader that New Zealand's never had. And he was voted New Zealand's uh, international player of the century. Wow. Yeah, so he's uh, he's alongside Wally Lewis as their best ever player. And the Aussies knew that, and they took him out and knocked him, knocked him out. Mm. The Kiwis were leading 2014, but without their captain and uh, short of a bit of condition, they ran out of gas and John Rebo uh, got, got the Aussies across the line in, 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 in the last uh, last couple of minutes. And it was brave, but the Kiwis felt terrible uh, that they fell short. But uh, at the end, with that fight that I spoke to, to you uh, earlier about with, uh, with uh, Kevin, Kevin Tarmody and Greg Dowling, 
at the end of the game, both of them got sent off the field as they were walking off the field. Uh, Dowling was saying some racist niggle to Kevin Tarbody. Also, Kevin Tarbody has come out in the media in 2008 and said they were, they were racist terms. Kevin Tarbody said, it stops here, I've had enough. When Dowling put his hands on Kevin Tarbody, Kevin Tarbody turned at him with the elbow and it was the, the most savage fight in rugby league. Mm. Um, alongside uh, Mark Broadhurst um, getting... Uh, destroyed by Bowden and headbutted and, you know, just mercilessly beaten by, by by Steve Bowden in Newcastle versus Manly in 1981. But this had a different kind of savagery because it was right next to the fans. You can see the look on the fans' faces as they're watching this. And as also a lot of the New Zealand guys tell me that the, the really bad beatdown really happened off camera, even though Tarmody was launching into some of the most vicious uppercuts you could ever, um, um, as they were scrambling away. And... They said from that point they never heard a single racist niggle from the Australian kangaroos after that test match. So when you said for the whole series, it was for this one match. Right, okay. And they, and, and they realised um, that there was a cost, a price to be paid um, for, for for racist niggle. They never heard racist stuff again. So also was crowned man of the match and Blocker Roach and all the Aussies said um, we were very lucky. And John Rebo said he really felt that the Aussies and the Aussies felt that the Kiwis had drawn a line in the sand that they would no longer be physical whipping boys and that they had the skills now between the guys playing in England, the best of the Fox Memorial Cup, and guys trained in the Winfield Cup system, that they could now match the... If they, under Graham Lowe, who could blend these guys like a perfect souffle, mm. um, he, they would all come together, that he would blend them this, for all, from all these disparate playing styles across the world, he would blend them together in, in, into a team. And what happened after the match was, and Olsen says, and Wally doesn't deny it, but he's prepared to run along with Olsen's side of the story. Olsen went to shake Wally's hand, he says, and, and Wally brushed him. And to a Māori, that is raising the black flag, as mm. they say in old pirate terms, you will take no prisoners from that point. Olsen said, okay, we're playing next week at Carlaw Park. Um, and Graham Lowe says, you know, put himself in Wally's position, probably the proudest man in Australia, most competitive man in Australian sport at the time. It's knocked off this perch by an impertinent reserve grade. Yeah. Mm. It was like, where's this guy coming from? So it's funny, the day after the first test, Wally Lewis is awarded the inaugural Adidas gold, Golden Boots. And that was at the Park Royal in Brisbane. And, and Graham Lowe is sitting next to Australian coach Terry Fernland. And, and Graham Lowe says, I remember saying to myself, your guy got the award this week. My Olsen is going to get you next week on muddy, on muddy Carlaw Park. Mm. And it, that's, that's, such a phenomenal story and a whole bunch of things ran through my head and I can't remember any of them. One of them, though, is um, Wayne Bennett recently was on a podcast where he was talking about when he was coaching New Zealand as well, Australia is up there winning all of these awards in front of all of his boys and he gets on the bus with them all later and says, you know, something essentially the same thing Graham Lowe, like Australia keeps getting lauded as the greatest thing but we're going to take them next week. Next time we play them, we take all their awards, you know, off them mentally um, and it's the same kind of thing even happening back there that that – Australia's getting lauded um, and, and is being mildly disrespectful still while New Zealand is building and building and building. When they go... Uh, yeah. No, you go. No, you go. Um, well, and, and, and Graham Lowe, the media just can't believe it. Olsen's one man of the match and he's playing unbelievably well and they're calling him a sorcerer and a magician and an alchemist, you know, who can somehow turn base metals into something something magnificent. Mm. But, you know, Graham Lowe says, I just gave those guys love. Yeah. And that's and something respond, we see. You know, men, men, men respond to positive 
it's an ancient uh, it's an ancient success story. And men men respond to a bit of grey hair, giving them some love and sometimes tough love, setting boundaries and allowing men, giving men the permission to love each other mm. in a way that uh, that strong teams build and they want to play for each other. And I'm just 13 guys popping into a car park and, and, and running around. Mm. The other thing I wanted to bring up just before we move off it is is how many people talk about souffles in rugby league? Not enough, I say, Patrick, and I'm glad that you did it before, that saying that Graham Lowe blended them like a like a beautiful souffle. That's that's not used enough in rugby league. Well, I borrowed from the great Paul Keating. Oh. <laughs> a, souffle, a souffle never rises twice. That's beautiful. And also, that's a Canterbury, another Canterbury Bulldog fan. There you go. You're, you're slowly uh, giving us your Canterbury vibes. To yeah. Now, uh, so so the game is snatched off them right at the end, and now we play the next two games in New Zealand, both in Auckland. Uh, what happens in game two? Well, the, the funny thing is, in, in, in contact sports, rugby league, rugby union, boxing is another one, where if you haven't deserved to win, you really don't celebrate that as hard as you would. That's right. That's a code of honour there. Mm. And a lot of the Aussies didn't feel like they were better than New Zealand. And for New Zealand, and Mark Graham says it, the Kangaroos had, had lost their unbeatable aura. Mm. And that first time you see it in boxing, you see it in rugby league, when a team gets their second win and starts to believe in themselves, and they had that. So this, you got the second test at Carlaw Park, and just, you know, Carlaw Park is really the 14th man of New Zealand rugby league. <laughs> right. an, old, an old Chinese market garden that no one wanted, but the rugby league grabbed it. They've been playing matches there since 1921, and the trams would take people from all over Auckland to drop them in front there. And it was a muddy drainage bog, and they had two fields there. So they would have the kids playing on one field, and they'd all come across and watch their heroes play on the main at Carlow Park. There was a, a you know, terrible drainage, and the fans were right on top of the, the ground. And they would also creep around the dressing room, so the fans would listen in on to the halftime speeches. Oh, wow. Which were peppered with swear words. Yeah. Um, and, and it was just a cauldron, you know, like Lake like Park, it becomes a real advantage to play there. And also another in Carlow Park, he was the king of Carlow Park, mm. whenever he had played there for, he, they always scheduled him on, on, for Monday East games because he brought in the crowds. He just loved entertaining those migrant workers and the white working class and you know, who would all escape the drudge of, of working-class New Zealand and they go into Kyla Park and they, they, they were the kings there. So um, the Wallabies and All Blacks are playing on the Saturday and the Kangaroos and Kiwis are playing on the Sunday. And Graham Lowe is being, you know, really quite cheeky and he calls the Kiwis the All Blacks game a curtain race. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> and we've never seen this arrogance. We've never seen this uh, part from rugby league. Rugby league always been the quiet little mongrel bastard child that yeah. should just speak when it's spoken to. Um, and funnily enough, uh, Graham Lowe tries to get the All Blacks and the, and the Kiwis together to meet each other and pump each other up. And the All Blacks management don't don't let it happen. Because mm. they didn't want to, they didn't want, um, you know, they considered the league is to be unclean. Uh, and as, Graham, as, as Mark Graham says, you know, you, if you to play rugby league in New Zealand, you were treated like a leper. Mm. Unfortunately, that's so, such a common story across the world. Anyway. Yeah, 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 it is. Um, but uh, on the positive side, the All Blacks were on the nose uh, because they'd allowed the Springbok Tour four years earlier. 
There was almost two months of riots in New Zealand whenever the All Blacks played the Springboks. It was amazing. And to the point of around this 85 times, the All Blacks coach Brian Lahore said the All Blacks couldn't wear their gear downtown because they were getting sledged. It's bizarre. So rugby league, yeah, rugby league had a little opportunity, like a bull terrier going at a little gap in the fence. Um, and, 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 and it took it. And, and it really felt, okay, we've got to win, boys, because this is our chance to put rugby league in the headlines for the first time. Mm. So the Sunday, the All Blacks win 10-9 against the Wallabies, but a pretty boring, you know, old-school rugby <laughs> game. It was dominated by the forwards. They didn't really fling it out the backs much. But Carlo Park is sold out, and Auckland is cracking with electricity. And, um, you know, low again, he felt the kangaroos' instincts had been blunted by this low-percentage robot football, so uh, they were ready to go. He always thought Australia's arrogance was the number one weakness. Right. Because he said something along the lines of, you know, they think they invented everything in rugby league except the air that you blow into the ball. Right. So he, so he had his plan. He was going to run his plan again. So they all run on for the second test, and there's New Zealand Prime Minister David Longy waiting to, to meet the team in the middle. And Longy has just done the ultimate giant killer, just like Kevin 07 toppling John Howard. He has toppled Piggy Muldoon the year before. So the new, there's a new uh, progressive government in power in New Zealand and he's at the head of it. And they consider him, although he was a, a white Pakeha, he was considered to be the first Pacific and Maori prime minister because he had deep links in those communities. And he was the member for Mangari, Olsen's home, home uh, electorate. Yeah, right. Olsen's mother used to go down to David Longy's electoral office and just whinge to him about the local issues and give him a serve about things. Including one time when Olsen sent his man to the match award uh, a microwave back and it got caught and they had to pay three times the cost of the microwave and customs and she went down and complained and eventually they whispered it in. Yeah, wow. Unbelievable. And so he's he's out there because he's also a rugby league fan. Am I remembering that right, that Prime Minister? He's an, he's an absolute rugby league fan. In fact, New Zealand has a long history of rugby league, r- rugby league fans as Prime Ministers, including Helen Clark. And Jacinda Ardern. Yeah, wow. Who lives, lives in Mount Albert, and she's a kind patron for the Mount Albert Rugby League Club. Wow. Um, so, so New Zealand run out to this one. Is it, are Australia, I know you said that Graham Lloyd does the similar tactics. Are Australia expecting it this time? Well, Australia has done, um, um, Australia's not expecting it. You can't, they just would have thought it was a bit of a fluke. Right. And, um, and, I mean, you can't, and they won as well. And winning does paper over yeah. um, a, a, a few things. And, and, you know, New Zealand ran out of gas. And there were sort of things there they could say, okay, that was their one-off moment. We've crushed the rebellion. And now <laughs> let's, resume, let's, let's resume business as usual. Yeah. Um, but they just hadn't factored in the fact that Olsen was um, about to put on one of the greatest ever masterclasses in international rugby league history, one of the most single dominant performances that anyone that ever saw it um, will remember. And it's, you know, you don't get the ball on every play, but Olsen really was just an absolute X factor. And Australia hadn't planned to be cut apart in the middle. Mm. It, is, it, it is a game of territory and hold the middle, spread the ball to the wings has been, you know, from 1895 until now, yeah. it's been, <laughs> yeah. you know, a, 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 a call way. Or if you lose the middle, you've gone. And when a team's cut up the middle, there's no stopping. Um, you know, when the, in, 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 and Olsen was right there in the middle. Um, there's one play in particular. He chips over the top, regains. You know, the Aussies are not expecting any chips over the top now. It's long gone in Sydney Rugby League as a 
as a high-risk player. Chips it over the top in his own half. Runs toward his old Balmain teammate, Gary Jack, and just gives him the ultimate bump. <laughs> he, does, he does a little stutter skip just before, an old bull rush move of his, just before he gets to Gary Jack, and he just, he just punctures him. Wow. So the New Zealanders, are, they really do outplay the obvious. It's embarrassing. But they have two disallowed tries. Like, if you look at them now and you see the replays, it, it was absolute. But this referee, referee Russ Gagnier, for the advantage he gave New Zealand for, for, for turning a blind eye to some of the rough stuff, um, he, he was also not a Johnny-on-the-spot referee. And uh, there's two clear tries you see it uh, when you watch the replay. So with 90 seconds to go, New Zealand's motoring towards victory. And King Wally, of course, the mark of all true champions, clicks into the next gear. Throws a cutout pass. Last, last play of the game, cutout pass to Gary Jack. They break through. Forward pass to John Rebo. Check it out now. Tell me that's not forward. <laughs> that's, that's, that's rugby league. And the four Kiwis are 90 seconds from greatness. And um, Rebo got them out of jail again. The Aussies swarm Rebo. Olsen gets them out of the match. Again? The one reporter wrote, Olsen churned the defence into a lunar landscape. Wow. Um, yeah, so, so Olsen's got the man of the match in the last match of the 1984 Test Series against Great Britain where he thrashes the Brits. And New Zealand wins that 3-0. So it really was, as Ken Arthurson said, this was the World Series. This was the, 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 the World Championship of Rugby League. First time in a long time we've really had that feeling that uh, there's two, two, two teams that are yeah. equal and going give, to give each other. So... Olsen's man of the match in that one. He's man of the match in the first, the third test against Great Britain. He's man of the match in the first test in Brisbane of this series. Second test here. Mm. So, so if you're running a golf leaderboard or a tennis ranking, Olsen's the number one ranked player in the world, indisputably. Three international man of the matches in a row. Mm. Wally Lewis is shocked. You know, he's, he, when I interviewed Wally, he called Olsen 10 foot tall and bulletproof. Yeah, wow. Well. And there was a classic witch hunt after this. The Australian media, Wally and all the US players, they conceded New Zealand was far superior. Everyone questioning Wally, and there's just this picture in my head of Wally slumping to his knees at the end of the game, just like, hallelujah, we got out of out of that one. Mm. In return, the New Zealanders are just devastated. They have done everything right, played a far superior game of football. How we come at his vomiting. The whole dressing room's crying. Him again writes in his book, and Olsen confirms they're all crying. Um, and Wally Lewis went to the change rooms afterwards, and this is a moment that's rocks two nations, he hugged Graham Lowe and was crying his eyes out. And that for me showed, Molly Lewis said, you know, I, I didn't feel right at all winning that. That's, that's, that, that's real manly behaviour, mm. I think. R- really highly emotionally intelligent behaviour from, from Molly Lewis. He doesn't have to do that. No. And shows Graham a lot of respect. So you got, shows a lot of respect as well, which is great. Shows a lot of respect. We played against and you know, Graham Lowe had devised a match plan to beat Wally Lewis mm. when he was playing in the Brisbane competition. So Wally Lewis already had unbelievable respect for Graham Lowe. And Wally Lewis will tell you, by far the best coach he ever had anything to do with was, mm. was Graham Lowe. And I, I've made a case in a few different places, but I think Graham Lowe is by far the greatest rugby league coach of all time. Yeah, wow. He went and, te- he went and tested himself in other conditions. He, won, he turned Wigan into a Manchester United-style powerhouse. He had an unbelievable win with Brisbane North, one of the greatest upsets in Australian history. Turned Otahu from also ran into premiership powerhouses, won two in a row in New Zealand. Uh, turned the Kiwis around and turned them into you know a really respectable, unbelievably unified outfit. Was the only outside coach ever to, to coach 
in uh, for Queensland and delivered a victory for Queensland, the state of origin, a really probable victory, and was doing great things with Manly, including saving the career of great Cliffy, Cliffy Lyons before he had a couple of life-threatening um, illnesses. Um, you know, where he was hospitalised mid-season, so he was never really allowed. But if you look at a man for all conditions, a man for all seasons, a man that has a brand of coaching that can just be dropped anywhere. Yeah, right. And they love him in England. We don't know how some of these Aussie coaches would have gone to England or even New Zealand. But he showed the flexibility where you could really, you know, if you want a guy to coach for your life, it would be great love. Yeah, right. And so is that what happens in, in Game 3 then? He, he gets them up for Game 3? Because you think by then, New Zealand, he's built them up. He spent two years of his life building them up to this series and now... They've effectively lost the series, but no one feels really like they've lost because although the, the scoreboard says that they've lost both things, Australia feels like they've lost both of them. How does, how does Graham get them up for game three? Well, they are. No one feels like they won this one. Yeah. The, Kiwis, <laughs> yeah. the Kiwis did play the best, but they're all devastated because this was what they saw was cometh the moment, cometh the man as far as this was New Zealand's opportunity to squash the All Blacks, to really elbow them aside and get um, a seat at the head table of New Zealand sport and just to stop being the poor cousin. And they really felt they, they squandered this opportunity. So Olsen, you know, Graham Lowe says Olsen was just a real asset in the darkest hour. It start, started in the change rooms. He went to each of the players individually, talked to the young ones. He got them laughing again. But Olsen could only do so much. They were all devastated. The Monday they were wrecked. The Tuesday they were training. It was low energy. The team was infected with gloom. So Lowe said, you know, we need something radical here. Um, you know, these players feel like they've let the fans down. And they've walked away with a loss at Carlo Park. They've turned up to their home ground every game since 1971. So Lowe said, I, I needed to somehow prove to the players that the people still love them. So he had an idea. So he clued in the radio station. And he drove all the players to the top of Queen Street in Auckland, the, the main street of Auckland. I said, right, guys, get out of the bus. And all the players said, you know, what's going on here? And Lowe says, uh, and I know you think everyone will be pissed off with us. And then he says, you'll be getting off even if I have to drag you off. <laughs> but, so I eventually got off the bus and everyone had been told about the, the, from the radio stations and through word of mouth. And the people absolutely swarmed them. Construction guys were hanging out of the buildings. Um, they shook their hands and slapped their backs and were just all over them. Mm. And also, you know, it really shocked the players. And also, so that was a life-changing experience. And, you know, we realised we hadn't let them down. We hadn't let rugby league down. And it's funny, they all talk about it. They feel that, that moment was like the rebirth of rugby league in New Zealand, where wow. we finally felt, you know, we may not have as many fans, but we finally feel we're alongside the All Blacks. That's phenomenal. And so they, and so they, they carry that. Oh, they're firing now. So Clayton Friends says this positive vibe just infected the team. Yeah. And then Graham Lowe was just so good on the mental management. He upgraded the hotel. And he said, we treated them like we won the test. Right. So they played fun touch footballs on the beach. They had a pork bones and pua. Pua is the New Zealand Greek vegetable. So they had to cook up and they played at the cultural heartstrings. Meanwhile, so the Kiwis are, are in this blissful cocoon of unity <laughs> and in Australia civil war has broken out so they've dropped even though the Australians have won Terry Cranley has panicked yeah. at the footsteps in the shadows and has dropped four Queenslanders Greg Kineski Mark Murray Chris Close and Greg Dowling and replaced them with New South Welshman Des Hasler Mark Geller Peter Tunks and Ben Elias mm. 
Now, QRL chairman Ron McCall have called it the biggest mess since King Alfred burnt the cake. Yeah. That the Queenslander letting rip. Yeah. So, and even New South Wales group, Rocker Roach, said it was suicidal and wrong to change a winning team. What a message that sends. Yeah. We're saying in that, in that rugby league, hard man, code of honour world, that we think we actually lost that. Don't worry about the scoreboard. We think we lost it to the point where we're going to make wholesale changes. Yeah. And the fact they're all Queenslanders. Mm. Now, this third match, yes, Australia's won the series or leading the series 2 0. But this third match is no dead rubber. Yeah. The first match of the 1988 World Cup qualifiers that's going to happen in three years. So this is huge. Um, and match day comes, and on breakfast, you know, Graham Lowe reads out the roles. Olsen, you take out Wally. Kurt Sorensen, I want you to terrify debutante Des Hasler. You know, Lowe says, quote, scare the shit out of him. <laughs> right. And Kevin Tarmody, you have to sort out the Australian, the Aussie forwards again. And I spoke to Graham Coops, the physio, and he said that uh, the Kiwis were so woke up on the bus they were shivering. Wow. Which I just think is uh, you know, amazing. Now, by some fluke, the Kiwi coach pulls up next to the kangaroo coach in the traffic lights just before. <laughs> you couldn't script it. And all the Kiwis flock to one side of the bus, and one player says, we're going to kill those, Steve. Yeah. Everyone, everyone dies here today. And all the Kiwis started shouting and screaming at the Aussies, and the Aussies looked over like, you know, what the hell is going on here? So they arrived at the ground, and Graham Lowe said, I love it. under our new model, we're only performing the haka after the match. The haka has to be earned. The haka has been derided as a bit of a cultural song and dance by the Aussies. So when it's performed after the game, it's going to be filled with more meaning. Wow. And just, and just as an idea of how open Graham Lowe is to new things, Mark Elia, who was one of the English um, Kiwi contingent, he suggested, just for the support the crowd had given them in the second test, he suggested that they run to both sides of the ground as a, as a line and wave at the stands. And Howard Comedy says there was such emotion when they did that that it shook the rickety old stands wow. that people made when they came over. And after that, they said, with the Aussies, they were filled with such emotion that it was all over. And also said he could hear his mum just screaming out her support. Wow. Um, and his mum's been through a real hard time. His, his father's been spending all of Olsen's money that he's been spending home, and he's a bit of a drunk, and uh, he's been beating her at times. And he also says to himself, this time I can make my mum happy. This, oh. is, this is the day. So when you watch that test, it is really an unbelievable level of rugby league. The Aussies weren't off their game. They were defending like fury. Their spots were on the line, the new guys and the old guys. Mm. Their, their future in international rugby league, for the first time, some of their futures were under threat. And the score was 2-0 just before the end of the... It's an absolute dogfight. And they are passing the ball around unbelievably. It's like the, what we're seeing now with this new open style of uh, COVID rugby league. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't heard a term like that, but that's perfect. COVID rugby league, of course it is, yes. Oh, yeah, we're all loving it. Yeah. Wrestling and nonsense. Yeah. Um, but the Kiwis couldn't find a way through, and also they were double-teaming and triple-teaming, and that the Aussies had worked Olsen out by now, put the best defenders on him and, and nullify him, and you can you know, really slow things down. So the game was in balance five minutes out from, from half-time and a little piece of Olsen Filipina magic. From halfway on the second tackle, now you can imagine if he'd done this in the winter. <laughs> yeah. 
There are actually examples, and Gary Freeman points out one example for Balmain when he got there and he chipped in his own half. They took him off immediately. Unbelievable. So Olsen does a wonderful rubber kick and he regains possession. And then on the fourth tackle, Olsen again gets the ball, chips over the top, picks it up off his toes on the bounce. And then now deep in the Aussie half, the Aussies are disoriented and in broken formation. And Mark Graham charges through like a yeoman warrior, gives the ball to little Clayton Friend, the little mulleted halfback from the <laughs> still playing in, in the long grass of New Zealand. Wow. And uh, Clayton Friend goes over and they went into the halftime break ahead. And Graham Lowe said, I didn't have to say anything. Guys were just shouting to each other at halftime, we've got them, we've got them. And I remember, remember saying, do it for Dennis Williams. Do it for all the guys who, who came before and couldn't beat the Aussies. Mm. And, and do it for Queen Street. Remember Queen Street. Remember how we felt. This is our time to pay those fans back. So they came out in the second half breathing fire. And it just became the Clayton Friends show. Olsen's tiny little five-foot-six uh, mate from, uh, you know, who played with Olsen later at North Sydney and later again at Wright Eastwood. He was just his coming-up party. And at one stage, if you watch the footage, he crawls through a scrum, <laughs> sneaks out the other side with the ball and makes a long break. And I've just never seen that. No. And and, and, and I had no idea. Honestly, poor Des Hasler, Kurt Sorensen just, you know, on Graham Lowe's instructions, just terrorised him. Mm. And, and hit him late and just a whole bunch of things to throw, throw him off his, off his game. So you've got this terrorism happening, personal terrorism. Yeah. You've got Clayton Friend, like a true pickpocket, a halfback, just taking every little <laughs> opportunity for making these breaks. And the level he played at, for me, speaks volumes to the level of the Fox Memorial Cup, that he could just come in and do that. It was a really good competition, and, and its best players were as good as any guys coming out of Australia. The depth wasn't there, but at the top, they were, they were certainly... And about half so they score again. Uh, Clayton, Clayton Friend scores again, and from the stand you start hearing his baritone chant, Kiwi, Kiwi, wow. Kiwi. And all these guys have turned up, you know, whole generations that haven't been able to show their their, their, their son a win. And friend has, you know, his grandchildren haven't had a win and daughters haven't had a win. And all of a sudden that terrible curse was about to be broken. And then James Lulawai steps Mel Meninga, and James Lulawai's sidestep is just, Unbelievable. Um, he had these little sort of tiny legs. And Leilua played in the same position, 25 kilos heavier, just as a, as a contrast piece. Yeah, isn't that amazing? Um, for, 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 for the West Tigers now. So yeah. the Kiwis win 18 nil. The first time in 67 years that the Kangaroos had been held scoreless. Unbelievable. So it's emphatic. The crowds rush onto the field. They're yeah. ready for the, you know, this is an earned attack. Patrick, I'm just about to run onto the field. I feel so excited and teed up oh, just yeah, from the story. Well, underdog stories are always beautiful. If you're a true lover of sport, you don't mind when an underdog beats you because you know how meaningful it is. Yeah. Um, and that's the joy of being a rugby league fan. So Graham Lowe's waving them all onto the field before the victory hunter. Who else but Kevin Tarbody steps up to lead the hunter? Mm. And he starts the first three or four of those scary stomps are in his swapped Aussie jersey and he rips it off. <laughs> and you know this was before the uh, metrosexual movement so he's got his huge hairy chest yeah. bellowing out come at the come with there and there's Olsen um, he's in, in there of course tucked away in the background with a huge grin and when they all jump up for that final uh, moment if you haven't been moved by that um, you know you're, 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 you're immovable yeah um, you know Graham Globe falls at a, a life highlight for anyone that was there oh. and Olsen it's just a, it's amazing, and that's 
where they really look at that. That's the birth of New Zealand Rugby League. That's the birth of the Warriors. That's the birth of respect because anyone that watched that, and I think I, I, I may have mentioned earlier or may not, 50% of males aged 20 to 39 watched, watched these games. So it's seared into the brains of this tiny playing base of Kiwis. Um, you know, one-third white Pakia, one-third Māori, one-third Pacific Islander, all coming together, this new New Zealand, mm. all coming together. And there's a, a New Zealand historian called uh, Gordon McLaughlin. I'm really sad that he passed away. He wrote uh, a, a book called The Passionless People, and he said the New Zealand identity has been monopolised by dour, um, you know, serious, um, rugged outdoorsmen, football flat style um, Kiwi. And this was the first team that bludgeoned New Zealand into sharing their identity. Hey, we've, we've also got exuberant Polynesians, and we've mm. also got exuberant Pakeha, and we've also got very conservative Polynesians, but we're all one nation and mm. not a dominant narrative because a nation has to be the sum of its stories and not just one group. You can't have the ones on the margins whose stories aren't told, which is why I'm you know, thrilled to tell this uh, story and bring it and, and bring it to life because I think it is a real New Zealand story. Uh, Olsen wins man of the series in a losing team, and it's rare, very rare, and all the kangaroos agreed. Wally, John Rebo, Chris Close, like there's no doubt Olsen was the difference. Phenomenal. And that was the, and that was the series that you know reshaped New Zealand rugby league, and the Aussie media, of course, are perplexed scratching their heads. <laughs> Terry Fernley gets sacked. So Terry Fernley wins the series 2-0. Wow. Well, yeah, yeah. And they bring in the Fernley rule. No coach of New South Wales or Queensland could ever again coach the Kangaroos because they knew someone like Graham Lowe can come in and exploit the fault line and uh, divide and conquer, which, which which he did, which I think was amazing. So that, and that 1985 team, uh, the first household names in New Zealand for rugby league, and it's where the game went went mainstream. The legacy was built on by the next generation, Aussie talent scouts. They woke up to the, the talent, and the most important thing, it killed off the inferiority complex, which was fantastic for International Rugby League, that we would now go into series. Fans started turning up to the Kangaroos games again, and this was the series that changed International Rugby League. Phenomenal. Now, look, you've Olsen's obviously a really large part of the story, not just because um, that's the perspective, you, you know, because you just wrote the book, but also because... He is, but he has, he's so much more than this series as well. What kind of an impact did Olsen have to Polynesian and Melanesian players, not just at the time, but also in the future, do you think? I think there had been a couple of Māori players to come over, like uh, Henry Tartana and a Samoan Oscar Danielson, who played for Newtown. But no one ever heard what happened to them back in New Zealand, and they, they conformed to that prototype of just the tough, brawny forward. Right. But, but Olsen... Through a couple of things, his 1982 footy card, he wears a pucker shell necklace. So the statement Olsen's making there is, I'm proud to be Polynesian. I'm not going to conform culturally. I'm not going to buckle. Um, there's various shots of him playing drums. I mean, they're all stereotypical, but he also didn't change his playing style. Mm. So he's saying to the Polynesians, you can play your way, which is a more exuberant brand of football. Look at the diving in the corners now, the round the... I mean, it's real turnstile popping brand of rugby league. Sonny Bill Williams' shoulder charges, the Benji step, you know, revolutionary new 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 moves in, in, in rugby league. Yeah. Uh, so Olsen gave them permission to dream that they could become a full-time, because they always thought, if we're professional, if we're not working at the midworks and doing this grind where we're exhausted during the week, if we became pro and did the sports science, we can really find ourselves in this game because the Polynesian were, were, in New Zealand were, were kind of trapped. They were, and they'd 
that's the old ways of the islands. And through things like Robin, Robert Muldoon's dawn raids, where he basically cracked down on all of the visa overstays that were from the Pacific Islands, even though two-thirds of the visa overstays, overstayers in New Zealand were from Australia, England, and yeah. South Africa, mm. I mean, it just shows an absolute racial targeting. And they brutalised these poor guys, locked a lot of them up, they terrorised families. And it really showed these people that they, they, they weren't welcome um, in New Zealand. And as a result, they didn't really feel um, Kiwis. But Olsen stood up for them and said, hey, you can be a Samoan, you can be Māori, you can be a proud Kiwi, and you can go and make it in Australia. And the proof of the pudding is the next two that came through, Daryl Williams for Manly, who became the first Kiwi to win a premiership, and Tony Kemp, who was the next playmaker. And that was another thing. They, there was a stereotype out there that uh, Polynesians and Māori can't be playmakers yeah. in range positions. Mm. Like AFL, they said they can't be quarterbacks. African-Americans can't be quarterbacks in basketball. They said the African-Americans can't be point guards. Mm. And, and, and time and opportunity has, um, has has shown that to be a fallacy. So Tony Kemp came through and also uh, people had to reluctantly accept this new Polynesian body shape, which is, means you can be quite bottom-heavy yet still fit. And this is a great anecdote from Tony Kemp, the next guy to come through. Tony Kemp and... Darrell Williams both say that Olsen was their absolute inspiration. And Tony Kemp coming through, you know, a big guy at Newcastle, used to beat all the skinny guys in the sprints. And they were like, Jesus, we're trying to get the weight off this guy. There's another story tells of Frank Stan putting Olsen in a wetsuit and running him around on a hot day trying to sort of reshape his body. And it's like, yeah, those thighs aren't going anywhere. If they'll try to get rid of Izzy Falau's thighs unsuccessfully, that's, that's just part of the, the, the package because there's the great, there's taro and, uh, and sweet potato, you know, the great Polynesian. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, look, um, he's, he's the man of the series, he, he, you know, he humbles Wally. Would he, would Olsen, you think, ever be inducted into the NRL Hall of Fame or, or will his poorly labelled Enigma status continue to hold him back? I, I don't think you can give an award to what someone could have done. Right. So he's in the New Zealand Hall of Fame and that's where he deserves to live because they were the group that provided the coaches that could get the best out of him. And I think it would be, um, because there are other guys like Olsen as well, like Larry Collar was another one, a a victim of massive mismanagement. Right. um, Who should have had an eight or nine year career. And there's examples of guys who, you know, some, like Tana Umanga. It's a shock that the first Polynesian captain of the All Blacks and an absolutely brilliant rugby union player only lasted for three weeks with the Newcastle Knights. Mm. And couldn't manage his homesickness. They had no idea. Mm. So we can't. I don't think you can induct someone into Hall of Fame. That that has to be for actual achievement. Yep. Um, but I think we just need to have Olsen's rightly serving as a cautionary tale that hey, coaches, it's actually your problem, your issue to get the best out of the players, not them conforming to your model. And, you know, the whole slew of man, personalised man management now, uh, where they treat the players like assets and have customised plans for them all. So there's a series of commonalities in the way they treat them, and there's a series of differences. And you have to look at Usman Khawaja as an unbelievable example. Kevin Peterson calls him a, a once-in-a-generation cricketer, and that's a guy, you know, you can't respect anyone's opinion more than Kevin Peterson. Mm. He's a great of the game himself, I, I, I believe. And he said, what are you guys doing crushing this guy's confidence and threatening with dropping him and, you know, putting him in a frame of mind where he can't play his natural game? That's suicide. Mm. I felt the same with Olsen. Mm. You don't draft this guy because he's the playmaker of New Zealand and try and turn him into a battering ram. Yeah. It, 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 it makes no sense. 
and it's the coach's fault for not getting the best out of the players. That's just the, when we look at it. And that's not to say Frank's dad is a good or a bad man. You know, Frank, I interviewed Frank for this, and, and that's fine. But Frank was perhaps the most extreme example of a very typical coach of that era. They did not care um, about what went on off the field. Frank would never, ever call uh, Olsen's mother. No. Um, that's just, that, that, that's, that's not going to happen. So it's, um, uh, without this 85 series, and, 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 and maybe without, um, you know, Frank Stanton and, and all these races, and Olsen doesn't have that good a story. He's just a, a, another guy. So all these guys have contributed to, a, you know, a great potential story that everyone can learn from. And I think it's best, even at the clubs now, people from different clubs are coming back and saying they like it, that it's, you know, they've done a lot of work on how to work with Polynesians, but wrapping it in a story, which is something we all understand, is the best way to reach people. Yeah. So I really, I've been working with Polynesian communities in rugby league for 12 or 13 years now, and I know they're not changing for anyone. Mm. And they love the game as much as we do, and for them it's, their, it's the great saviour of their community. It mm. is funding, you know, unbelievable projects. And once that NRL contract is signed, we all should all we, sh- we should do what the NBA does and go into living rooms and just watch families that dawn on families. Their, their whole trajectory as a family. Yeah. Their kids going to go to private school. They're going to be able to get that water system, that sewage system for their families back in Samoa. Um, you know, the kids, some kids have gone into rehab or, you know, where they're going to be able to pay for it and someone's little operation they're going to be able to pay for. Um, it's just going to open up a world of opportunity for the extended family. And on the downside of that, we've seen suicides of, of, of players who, if they get injured or, or don't feel they can provide or the pressure of this providing for the family is too much for them. So it's very, they're very complex um, issues. But one thing for sure, and Olsen said this straight away, and the thing I respect about Olsen is somehow he knew that he was the start of something. Right. And he would always say, you don't know, you, you, you don't know, who, you don't know who Polynesians are, are now, but you will soon. Far out. Which is, yeah, I mean, what a, what a guy, what a series. Um, yeah. Oh, uh, and thank you so much for telling it. I mean, I, I know you said at one stage that um, it's, it's Olsen's story and you were just telling it and, and that you wanted him to get, a large proportion of the, uh, or, or I think it was fifty-fifty of the book sales, because you, you know, it's his, it's his story, and it's his, I mean, he's putting up with all of that stuff and and earning all of that stuff, and so that you wanted to help him, uh, or give him what you thought he owed, was owed. Well, I think in these situations, particularly thirty-five years out, I think it's just, you know, the storyteller needs the story, and the, and the story needs the storyteller. You're right. Without someone, and if you just told us a story from a first-hand perspective. Um, Olsen doesn't talk much, so it'll be a 20-page book. <laughs> yeah. He's a very quiet, humble guy. But I, I think without the context, without without it being wrapped in context about yeah. you know, what, what this started and what he had to go through and the sacrifices he made so others could thrive, because that's the way the New Zealanders think. And people can say what they want about the things like the racism, but I was there and it was real. Mm. And, you know, we used to tell Aboriginal jokes at parties. It's a much forgotten part of Australian history, but it was there. Um, and it's something we, we, we've worked through. I'm very proud of our country. I've mean, still got a long way to go, but we've made great steps in. You don't hear that racial abuse in rugby league games now, or it's quite rare, or you see people reporting it. Mm. Um, still still some work to be done, but um, in many ways, you know, rugby league and AFL, they're just reflections of, of, of wider society. And in any case, you know, don't hate the player, hate the game. Mm. Um, well, this has been fantastic, Patrick. Thanks so much. That was all the questions and comments I have. Did you have anything else before we finish? No, no, but I think you do a wonderful job. And again, a big shout out to all the podcasters for preserving the cultural memory and bringing us stories because that's rugby league's great difference. Um, we have unbelievable stories and stories what, what binds people.
people to the soul of the game. And I think you're uh, you're on a winner. And just you know, to all of you guys, including the, the Chasing Roos crew, uh, keep up the good work. Well, speaking of stories, um, you can get your book in all good bookstores in New Zealand and Australia. We'll also tweet a link um, to where you can get it from when the episode comes out. I, I have a copy and loved it thoroughly. In fact, a friend of mine saw it being um, pushed somewhere, I think it was on, on one of the Fox Cable things, and, and knew straight away that it was going to be something that I thoroughly enjoyed, and I, and I did, so I can't recommend the book enough. Well, it's great youngsters like you are getting in, 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 into it as well because we should be proud. Um, of our history, and I think the only way is through stories and documentaries that the youngsters can can learn about the fine tradition that they've uh, they've joined and, 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 and you know what, what we want to pass on to our kids. The website is www.thebigo.kiwi. Love it. Thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure.